Today's scripture lesson has already been read for your hearing. Let me, for homiletic emphasis, point to Acts chapter 2, verses 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions. They would sell their goods and they would distribute them to all as any that had need. A pre-existing condition. A pre-existing condition. Let us pray. Lord, I need your help. Amen. This week in the United States Congress, a majority of House Republicans kept their campaign promise. They voted successfully to repeal and replace the Affordable Health Care Act. There are many debates around the details. These debates will remain heated and contested as the bill moves toward the Senate. Yet the greatest concern across the political spectrum focuses on a single point, this point of pre-existing conditions. In healthcare parlance, a pre-existing condition is a medical condition that predated a person's health insurance coverage. Prior to the Affordable Health Care Act, insurers could cite pre-existing conditions to deny coverage. Some chose to cite pre-existing conditions to charge higher rates. Others might cite pre-existing conditions to cover an individual, save any treatment associated with said physical situation. Regardless of political or partisan affiliation, many find this practice troubling. Consider how the public responded to two different treatments of the topic this week. Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks went live on CNN to defend the new bill. He felt it unfair that healthy or younger families should pay higher premiums. Thus, Congressman Brooks understood the new legislation as allowing insurance companies to require people with higher health care costs to contribute more to the insurance pool. This would, in his words, reduce the cost of those people who lived good lives and done things right to keep their body healthy, end quote. Oh, the backlash on social media was immediate and swift. Some noted the gospel story of the blind man 
the one where the disciples naively asked Jesus, who sinned, the blind man or his parents? There was another woman. There was another woman who, from Congressman Brooks's district, when she was a small child, she and her family were hit by a drunk driver. In fact, Congressman Brooks, who was then practicing law, compassionately represented her family in court. Her little brother was an infant during that accident, and he was sent through the windshield, and it caused permanent brain damage. And this woman wrote to Congressman Brooks on Twitter saying, my brother is now 36 years old. He requires over $1,000 out-of-pocket medicine and co-pays each month. Then she asked the congressman, were we not living right? There was also Shannon Abbott. Shannon posted a picture on Instagram that was taken in 2010. The photo was taken while she was expecting her son Solomon. That year, her husband, the Reverend Chad Abbott, lost his job at a nonprofit due to funding issues. Fortunately, Reverend Abbott soon found new work, but he was informed by the insurance company that they would not cover prenatal care or Solomon's birth because the pregnancy was a pre-existing condition. Thus, Shannon, Shannon Abbott sent the insurance company a message. The message was this beautiful photo of her proud and pregnant frame holding up a sign that said, my baby is not a pre-existing condition. Yet with the same passion that many rejected Congressman Brooks, others empathized with late night host Jimmy Kimmel. Kimmel used his late night monologue to share the story of a newborn son, a baby that was born just the previous week with a heart defect. Kimmel implored Congress to do the right thing. One should not have to be a celebrity or a multimillionaire in order to afford protection from the trials and the travails that are inevitable with life. As Kimmel told us, we can all do better. My friends, that this topic captured the headlines this particular week, that this theme of ensuring the public good sits at the center of our political and moral discourse in this country, one would think that God selected this week's lectionary text especially for us. It comes from the book of Acts. Here, we see early followers of Jesus forming a community of faith. These largely Jewish followers decided to make Jesus their choice. Some of them, like Peter, John, and James, the brother of Jesus, walked with him. They talked with him. They even witnessed his execution. There were others that heard about Jesus. They came to the community to learn more about this healer with antibiotics in his fingertips, wisdom on his lips, and mercy in his heart. And still others 
Others came and joined the community, appreciating how these followers treated one another. They were an ecclesia, a people that were called out as distinct, and they were an intentional koinonia, a fellowship of those who had experienced the love, the goodness, and the grace of Almighty God. This is why the book of Acts tells us that there's something unique about this community. This community, they didn't live according to the social rules of the larger society. They decided to live intentionally with the view toward the common good. Thus, we read that members of the Jesus movement sold all that they had, that everyone in the community might be met right at their needs. My friends, as I considered this text, in relationship to our contemporary moment, let me offer a few initial thoughts. The first thing is, I'm not interested in getting trapped in an ideological debate here. For over a century, people have appealed to this text to promote a utopian communal vision. Yet history, history has proven that neither capitalism nor communism can offer us a perfect society. Why is that? Why? Because human beings are such imperfect creatures. This is why regardless of what side you fall on on the ideological spectrum, we all need a dose of epistemic humility. Even the best intentioned political projects can soon devolve into George Orwell's animal farm. And even the most theorized economic philosophies soon can become Gary Ross's Hunger Games. For whether it's the communism of Lenin's Russian Revolution or whether it's unbridled capitalism of the contemporary moment, we all need a higher moral vision of human capacity. And we all need a sober awareness of our own sinful natures. But there's something else about this story. There's something else about this act story. I want to suggest for you this morning that this is a perfect scripture to cite whenever you get into a debate with those who profess to believe in the literal interpretations of the Bible. Think of those who appeal to biblical inerrancy, particularly when it comes to matters of gender, science, and sexuality. Some of you know who I'm talking about. You know who those who believe women were made to compliment men as divine background singers. Women ought to give support, but men are the God-ordained lead vocalists of humanity. These people appeal to the Bible to promote this dangerous and despicable theology of complementarianism. Or think about those who dismiss scientific discoveries about the universe, evolution, or climate change. They use the Bible to promote the belief that Adam and Eve were riding on dinosaurs 6,000 years ago. And of course, there are those who refute the science of innate sexual and gender orientations. 
They appeal to the Bible to protest same-sex marriage or equal protections under the law. These are people in our Christian community. And we can no longer afford to scoff at superciliously or dismiss these views. Why? Because many people who hold such beliefs now sit in some of the highest positions of power in our nation. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that when it comes to science and sexuality, they take the position, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Yet when it comes to social relations and how the Bible says that early Christian communities treated each other, the same people, the same folk get to stuttering and bumbling. Well, no, what the, what the, what the Bible is really trying to say in context there and what uh, God had meant to say was the same Christian. The same Christians who champion so-called biblical values seem to be the same ones who ignore what we owe to one another when it comes to public policy. When it comes to the one who falls in love with and who one falls in love with, it's all about biblical fundamentalism. The Bible says. But when it comes to the common good, when it comes to public education, social safety nets, and the environment, it seems biblical fundamentalism gets trumped by free market fundamentalism. The same Christians who say that we must protect unborn children in the womb at all costs are often the same Christians who seem not to care at all about the most vulnerable children once they're born. I'm here to say you can't be pro-life but not give a damn about the quality of life. It doesn't work that way. This is why I'll admit this morning I'm sick and I'm tired of people using their faith to justify their callousness. Must we all agree with one another? Absolutely not. Do I believe in theological and political diversity? Absolutely. Deliberating diverse viewpoints is the lubricant of a healthy democracy. But there has to be some fundamental values to which you and I can appeal. For we cannot talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as citizens of this nation unless all of us are willing to make sacrifices of the self toward the betterment of the common good. We must have the will. We must have the spiritual and the moral will. We must have the will to demand that the profits of corporations should not take precedent over the well-being of American people. Nor should we privilege the well-being of politicians and plutocrats over the majority of the American population. A population, a majority of which are simply one layoff or one illness away from financial ruin. Call me crazy, but I have the faith to believe that we have more than enough to guarantee everyone health care for their bodies, education for their minds, and labor for their dignity. 
For in a resource-rich nation like ours, we have to stop pitting one need against another need. As if it's always a zero-sum game when the top 1% continues to make off like fat cats. This, this is the moral ideal set forth in today's text. This is the moral vision that the writer of Acts gives us about the early Christian community. That's why, so without decontextualizing this story, without trying to turn it into a broad-based economic philosophy, we can still take seriously the question that this text poses of us. What does God require of us in regards to the common good? I realize I realize that we live in a culture that champions personal responsibility. I'm a parent, I get that. I get that we live in a country that valorizes individual accomplishments. This is the culture, whether it's Immanuel Kant's autonomous moral subject, whether it's Herbert Spencer's social Darwinism that posits that the social cream will always rise to the top or whether it's today's gospel of prosperity that professes material wealth and physical health are just desserts of those who live moral lives. The direct causation between goodness and blessings over against sin and suffering has contaminated the cultural air that we breathe. And this is why some of us fall prey to this logic. Because some of us, everybody in this room, I would argue, we have achieved modicum levels of success. And because many of us have achieved levels of success, it's easy for us to embrace this sort of narrative. We're self-made men. We're self-made women. And if others just work hard and play by the rules, then they too can achieve their heart's desires. That's why we beat our chest while reciting William Ernest Henley's famous poem, Invictus. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. And before you know it, we have obscured fundamental truths about each and every one of us. For all that we have and all that we are, is a result of somebody else's labor and sacrifice. Oh, this is why my father used to say to me constantly growing up, don't forget, son, just because you woke up on third base doesn't mean you hit a triple. Consider, consider our existence even at a place like Harvard. We, all of us, we're the beneficiaries of great sacrifice, some noble and some tragic and terrible. There was noble sacrifice. There was noble sacrifice, say, for instance, the names on this wall. Those who gave their wealth and their wisdom to build a lasting fine institution like this. But there's also the land that Harvard gained from the Indians. The promises we broke and even the human bodies that were trafficked and sold that continued to benefit the endowment of this institution. 
But no matter how you slice and dice the history of Harvard, it informs our current existence. None of us are self-made Harvard men or women. In fact, it's true from our first breath. There's never a moment that you and I are not interdependent human beings. From the moment we are born, we're being held by others. We're being cared for by others. We're being caressed and shown affection by others. In fact, studies on baby brain development underscore the importance of what seems to us to be this natural act. Just a few decades ago, it was discovered that newborn babies in a Romanian orphanage were being chained to beds. These babies had little human touch. There were not enough helping hands to hold, nor did it seem that there was enough compassion to care. Later studies revealed that a disproportionate number of these infants experienced mental deficiencies. A number experienced developmental delays, and tragically, many of the babies did not make it past infancy. This should remind us that there is no network apart from a network of care and concern. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this may be the pre-existing condition that Jesus' followers shared. Yes, they were each aware of their own susceptibility. Yes, they were each aware of their own vulnerability. Yes, they were each aware of their own social and physical fragility. That's why I'm sure they looked upon one another and they said, it might be you today and I might be fine, but it might be me tomorrow. Thus, we have to care for one another because none of us knows what the future holds. But we do this. We do this because there's another pre-existing condition that we all share. And that is that we've all been beneficiaries of the grace, goodness, compassion, and love of Almighty God. And I want to say that it's because of this pre-existing condition, recipients of God's love, that it's our moral responsibility to extend that kind of care and concern to one another. For how can we say we love the Lord, who we've never ever seen before, and yet forget to say we love and thus care for the one who we walk beside each and every day? That's what I would like for us to take away from this text this morning. You're here, you are here, I am here. Why? Because somebody somewhere along the line experienced God's mercy and God's grace in your life. And that's the pre-existing condition that you and I share. And might we use that knowledge today? Might we use that reality this morning to reconsider what's our obligation to one another? And when we do that, when we see that we all have this pre-existing condition of God's grace and God's goodness that got us to where we are today, 
then you and I might be able to sing with the great gospel songwriter. I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. For it's God's will that every need shall be supplied. Why? Because you're important to me. And I need you to survive. Let the church say amen. And now I would invite